0: To summarize this week's person seems like listing everything that an entrepreneur could do. He opened restaurants, he introduced new products to Europe, and he became the first of his nation to publish a book in English. He was Sheikh Dean Muhammad. Welcome to Persona. Stories of Fascinating People. London is one of those cities that seems to absorb every turn and reversal of fortune into its identity. Bomb it? Its new skyline becomes iconic. Burn it? The quality of life improves, as the new buildings are more spacious and better designed. Tear down the walls? Never needed them anyway. London's massive and established immigrant community is an example of the city's ability to integrate new things into itself. Not that it's been smooth sailing, exactly. There were race riots and attacks, and there's a substantial crime problem in the poorer areas of the city, which are largely inhabited by those minorities. But the point is that they are now a part of the city, not an appendage. You see public signs written in Arabic and Persian warning people not to feed the birds. It seems like every convenience store is run by a middle-aged guy from India or Pakistan. Not to mention specialty stores after specialty store uh, for Chinese, Pakistani, Vietnamese, Polish tastes. Halal meat is easier to come by than not in some neighborhoods. So that's not to say that London is some kind of moral tale of the excellence of some city's ability to integrate, but it has managed to allow those elements to form a part of its character. But where did it all start? Well, we can trace many of the firsts back to one enterprising Bengali named Sheikh Dean Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 1759 in Patna, which is about 400 miles away from Bengal's capital of Calcutta. These were times of great upheaval in India, but that's not how Dean saw it. In his book, The Travels of Dean Muhammad, He recounts the era through the gilded eyes of childhood. He can't seem to find anything unhappy to say about it. Everywhere was beauty, so much so that it reminded him of the Garden of Eden. Gold and diamonds were plentiful. There was no crime at all in his estimation. His reverie, though, ends when he reaches the point in his life when, at age eleven, he was deprived of his father, as he perished bravely, his son declares, in the line of duty. His father was a sepoy, a local Indian soldier in the employ of the British East India Company. That position put him right at the crossroads of India's history between what was and what was to be. The Mughal Empire, the power which had been in control of nearly the whole subcontinent for about 200 years, was beginning to enterprise. While the military had always been and continued to be strong, its administration was weak. The central government had a hard time consolidating power over the plethora of disparate groups under its command. It said that India has 122 major languages and upwards of 1,600 dialects. While the ruling elites were Muslim, most of the subjects were not, with scores of Hindus, not a few Sikhs, and plenty of other religious minorities. This was initially the strength of the empire. They did not interfere with the inner workings of each subject people. Pluralism was encouraged. But this detached style of ruling paved the way for weak governess that couldn't administrate the economy, for example. It seemed at times that it was an empire in name only, but really just a collection of groups under the same name. Several Nawabs, a title translated as Viceroy, broke away from the Mughal establishment in the early 1700s. While these still continued to nominally be servants of the emperor over in Old Delhi, they became quite used to doing whatever they wanted. One of these autonomous autocracies was Bengal, and it was into newfound freedom that Muhammad was born. But just as national liberty seemed to be on the horizon, new players entered the game. The Mughal decline was accompanied and hastened by the arrival of the European East India companies. These corporations are often discussed and rarely understood. Almost every European power with a navy and ambition had a trade company to promote its interests in far-away lands. Austria, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, Portugal, Sweden, and of course Britain all had their crown corporations. There were mixed feelings towards these enterprises among Indians. On the one hand, they promised enhanced trade, which was welcome since the Mughal economy was sluggish. But many recognized them as the thin end of the wedge. Soon the companies had monopolies over entire industries in some regions, like British control of cotton production in Bengal. They also brought militaries with them to, quote, protect their interests. Many as we said recruited among the locals. It was quickly apparent that the Europeans did not want to trade as equals. They wanted to rule as conquerors. Not everyone saw that as a bad thing, though. Or at least we could say they spotted an opportunity in the coming changes. The Mughal Empire was unpopular over large swaths of the population. Some thought that they could ride this invasion wave, then seize power among the occupiers. Some thought they could ride the invasion wave, then seize power among the occupiers. For example, the Nawab of Bengal, when Muhammad was a child, was Mir Kasim. I think that's how you say it. I don't speak Bengali. And he was put in his position by the British company. He took advantage of the political situation and got their support to overthrow the previous Nawab. They thought that he'd be friendlier to their aims. And he worked along with them according to what they wanted until there was some kind of falling out leading to the Battle of Buxar, which, again, I assume is how you pronounce it. I don't speak Bengali. That ended up being perhaps the decisive battle in the story of British dominance over the region. And it's regarded by some as the point of no return for European control of India. That battle may have been India's last chance to prevent uh, the English hegemony over the subcontinent that was to come. See, from then on, there was no escape. It had become self-sustaining. Now, due to these factors, the changing of the winds, you could say, uh, sepoy became a popular occupation. You could get excellent military training, good pay, and the chance to play for what looked to be the winning team. Muhammad wanted all of that. He joined the company's army as soon as he could, despite the protests of his mother, no doubt hoping that her son would avoid his father's fate. His mentor, the man who invited him to the company, was an Irish Protestant captain called Godfrey Baker, who Muhammad would regard as his best friend. Muhammad's memoirs provide our only knowledge of this period of his life, and according to them, he loved almost every moment of his commission. Since the company's primary objective was to protect trade routes that the company used, the main enemy, Muhammad recalls, were clans who preyed on traders and soldiers. He talks about the unstoppable nature of the volley fire tactic against these unprepared robber bands. British soldiers had no qualms about executing or maiming anyone they captured. Wanting to send a message, they left many of the bodies out for all to see. Yet, with this cruelty on display, Dean claims no compassion for his fellow countrymen in his writings. They were, after all, killing Indian traders as well as Europeans. Additionally, his book was written for a British audience, So he may have been cautious not to criticize his readership's leadership. Another interesting aspect of the book is his regular detours uh, to discuss manners and customs of the different cultures in India. I can't speak to the accuracy of his depictions, having been to neither India nor the 18th century, but the detail is pretty extraordinary. He must have kept a diary is what I'm saying. Also some light plagiarism may have been involved. Anyway... He goes into traditional Muslim weddings, the occupation-based caste system, Hindu religion, and each subject is treated with a surprising degree of respect. Mughal pluralism must have shaped his worldview, where no religion is evil or lesser, just different. He sounds almost defensive at times, for example, when he says that, contrary to popular belief, Muslims do not worship Muhammad, merely honor him as the one who freed them from idolatry. Muhammad was later present at some of the larger battles, some that really marked turning points in India's history, but the politics behind those and why they happened is going to be time-consuming to go into, and, well, I feel like we've spent enough time on this period in his life already. Really, I mean, it always comes down to greed and the inability of powerful people to negotiate until after they've spilled some meaningless grunts' blood. Surprisingly, the Seemingly Invincible Sepoy Army, with their European weapons and tactics, actually lost a couple of these, which challenged a lot of the givens of the day, like the idea that India was going to be an easy conquest. So that's the contents of Muhammad's first book, but what about the book itself? What did it mean for literature at the time? When he first published it in Ireland, it received a warmish reception among the Anglo-Irish gentry he was surrounded by. No doubt they all assured him that they had read it, or they would read it whenever it became available, to which he, no doubt, replied that it was available at that very moment, to which they probably said they'd definitely read it as soon as they could, and then hoped he'd forget. But he did remember, and didn't feel like bringing it up again, as it would make him sound needy, but he did eventually ask them if they got around to reading it a couple months later, and they, realizing that they'd have to lie their way out of this one, said they started it, but got busy. I may be projecting here a little bit, but that's usually the way these things go in my experience. While pseudoscientific attitudes relating to race weren't to be popularized for a few more years, there certainly was an idea that white Europeans were more rational, virtuous, and industrious than those with darker skin. So Dean's book, which argued several times that Indians were just as moral and capable as his British benefactors, and sometimes more so, was considered politically incorrect, for lack of a better term. People in Europe couldn't really wrap their heads around the idea of Indians, who were largely unchristian and whose customs were totally different to their own, could be their equals or betters at anything except very narrow tasks. How could they be, the thinking went. They're turning on each other as we speak. This logic would, of course, ignore the fact that white European nations would turn on each other with regularity, but nobody said this was a logic thing. It's prejudice, and prejudice transcends self-reflection. The book is available online, that's how I managed to read it, and if you do read it, you'll probably think, well, his prose is a little purple and his descriptions get a little tedious, but that was exactly the style for travel books at the time which actually caused more trouble for Dean. See, those nascent racist ideas were also directed at the writer. Even though he was heavily westernized culturally, it was still assumed that he had to have a ghost writer because there was no way, in his reader's opinion, that an Indian could have written so competently. And the writing is competent, even if it doesn't really keep with modern, uh, concise writing style. Muhammad was therefore not a very influential writer. His ideas and his descriptions went uh, more or less ignored as people favored their more comfortable, racist assumptions. His book remained obscure for the better part of two centuries until his unique story piqued scholarly interest. When Captain Baker quit the company and moved to Ireland, Muhammad moved with him and settled in Cork in 1784. There, he studied English and married a local woman named Jane Daly. Muhammad converted, to the tri- Muhammad converted to the Church of Ireland to get married. It was illegal for non-Christians to marry Christians at the time, but the change appears to have been sincere. In his writing, he occasionally refers to the Christian Bible and speaks about Islam with what seems to be a respectful detachment. In fact, one of his grandchildren became a Church of England vicar, which means... There was, at one time, a Reverend Muhammad. On a completely unrelated note, another of his grandchildren became the respected physician Frederick Akbar Muhammad, who was a pioneer of using blood pressure as an indicator of overall health. Sheikh Din Muhammad moved to London and, in 1810, made his second first. This was the Hindustan Coffee House, which did not serve coffee, but was the first Indian restaurant in England. Serving curry long before it had become a British staple, uh, Muhammad went bankrupt just a year later due to lack of business. Why? Was it because he was too early? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that he marketed almost entirely to Indian men living in London, at least according to his ads. Back then, there were a good few Indians about, but nothing approaching the 10 million that live in the UK today. Meanwhile, there certainly was a market among native Brits for exotic foods, with a number of Oriental things having already become a part of British life. Tea from China, cotton from Egypt and India, silks from Persia. These had become orthodox part of life. Curry could certainly join those ranks, and in fact it did. But Muhammad himself had little to do with that. Instead, the public was slow to warm up to this idea. Some, including Michael H. Fisher, who wrote the definitive essay on Muhammad, say that it could have had to do with the location of the restaurant, it could have had to do with his marketing, or it could have had to do with the fact that um, those who would have liked Indian food, the Westerners who would have been interested in that, could already afford their own chefs and so could have their food made exactly to their specifications, instead of having to go to a restaurant to have it made approximately to their specifications. For whatever reason, the slow trickle of the public's monies was too slow to fill his emptying pockets, and so he had to pack up and move to Brighton. Couldn't find work in London elsewhere. Again, Mohammed was the first at something, but he doesn't seem to have been particularly influential in the creation of the industry that has become. How many of the 8,500 Indian restaurants in the UK would not exist if the Hindustan coffee house had never existed? Well, It's hard to say, but the answer might be all of them. The last notable startup from this professional upstart was the habit of shampooing at a bathhouse in Brighton. The word he borrowed from Hindi, which means to knead or massage, and usually is referencing the head. See, that was the primary idea for shampooing at the time, the actual massaging of the head. What we consider the shampoo, the stuff that you put in your hair, was less important. It was just some herbs and soap to aid the treatment. It had been a popular treatment in India for centuries, one Muhammad had studied well when he was a young man, along with all manner of Indian alchemy, which was, you know, equal parts science and superstition. Muhammad claimed that it could cure what ailed you, Including arthritis, gout, lame legs, aches, pains, etc. Um, medically questionable, some of those claims. It's hard to say exactly what rubbing someone's head could do for their gout, but, well, science was still pretty young at the time, and, you know, who knows. Still, the treatment was exotic, and it feels good to get a head rub, just ask dogs. So the endeavor got a little popular. Still, there was a lot of resistance to the Indian treatment. You know, it sounded weird to a lot of people, and, well, they just didn't want to do it. But once the King of England, George IV, appointed Muhammad as his shampoo surgeon, the whole thing started to take off in a new way. Next thing you know, shampoo is in every shower in Europe and beyond. Though Dove is yet to make one that can cure arthritis. This was the first and probably the only time Muhammad wasn't just destined to be the answer to a trivia question. The first Indian to do this or that. It doesn't seem to be hyperbole to say that he's the reason for the explosion in popularity of this obscure oriental treatment of shampooing. And a lot of the popularity of Turkish bathhouses can be traced back to his influence as well. Muhammad died in Brighton at 91 years old. Wait, really? 91? Wow. He was a long way from home, and he was buried without much fanfare. He went largely forgotten along with his accomplishments until the second half of the 20th century, when discussions of immigrants and their accomplishments became more in vogue. Did he change the face of history? I'd say probably not. Most of what he did went into the wisps of history, to be commemorated by plaques and footnotes, answers in pub quizzes, and, you know, admittedly, the progenitor of a useful industry. So if you think of it in historical terms, he's not that significant of a person, but in human ones, he's extraordinary. He came from a country that was losing its sense of self, one that it wouldn't regain until, well, just about a hundred years ago. He was the son of a soldier who grew up wanting nothing more than to be like his father, He was the subject of a dying emperor who went to live amongst its killers. A man who can make something from what he was given like Muhammad did is extraordinary. How many of us, if we were sent to live off someplace else, could say that we could do half of what he did? Start companies, keep trying even though we fail time and again. I mean, how many of us could deal with that and just keep on going? It's extraordinary and it's certainly worthy of commemoration. There is an addendum to Muhammad's life story that I feel I need to put on, but I couldn't find a spot for it, so we're just going to stick it on to the end here. He may have been a bigamist. Some scholars have pointed out evidence of church records that he was married twice without ever divorcing his first wife, and while well, she was clearly still alive now there's not a lot of documentation for this it's just well i don't know what to make of it it's a very strange blip on his life scroll it doesn't it doesn't make any sense it's not really even relevant but it's weird well i would be remiss if i didn't bring it up but it's just it's it's weird anyway thank you for listening Subscribe, and please do share this if you enjoyed it. That's the best way that you can help out, is getting us more listeners. Now, the way you can help out the show is uh, I do have a book that you can buy, Ireland's Forgotten County, A Guide to Donegal. It's available on Amazon. Next week's person is Tom Crean, the farmhand at the end of the world. Thank you very much for listening.